This is the Wavemaker Conversations podcast. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest is Ishmael Bea. And everyone I have come across who has met Ishmael Bea, who knows his story, seems to have essentially the same question. How is it that a boy who lost his mother and father and siblings in his country's civil war... I lost hope in everything. Because part of the desire to run was that I could find them. But now there was nothing to find anymore. How is it that a boy who was forced to become a soldier at the age of 13... I was seeing that there was blood all over the place, you know. And at some point I just snapped. I realized that if I don't shoot this weapon, I'm going to die. So then I just started shooting. And that was the beginning of my war life, you know. It changed everything. How is it that a boy whose commanders fed him and the other child soldiers a steady diet of addictive drugs to increase their will to fight? Cocaine and some gunpowder or heroin and some gunpowder. When you take this stuff, you can't feel yourself for weeks. You can't feel your own body. So sometimes we'll go fight and we'll come back and you have bullet piercings. Uh, You've been shot, you would know. And somebody says, I think you were shot. How is it that such a boy could be here with us today as a man, a husband, a father, whose spirit seems to be captured in one word, radiant? Ishmael Bea is an author now. His first book, A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier, gained him global recognition. His new book, a novel, about going home to repair one's life in a country that has been devastated by war, is called Radiance of Tomorrow. This conversation from the Nantucket Book Festival, hard to listen to at times, yet thoroughly uplifting, captures the radiance of Ishmael Bea. Ishmael, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you. Thank you. So we just had a long lunch together. The first thing you informed me was it's a good thing we had rice, because when rice is not on the table, tell me what it means for you. Well, you know, I'm from uh, Sierra Leone, and rice is our staple food. We eat rice every day. So actually in Sierra Leone, if uh, you feed somebody all day and you haven't fed them rice, and you ask them, have you eaten today? They will say, I have not had anything to eat today which means that they have not had rice. So, <laughs> so so, just understanding your country a little bit, a few things fascinate me about your youth as well. When you were growing up, do you remember, what were, did people have a certain purpose in life or was it simpler than that? Well, I think people had purposes, but uh, the people had a very simple way of attaining happiness. You know, they dreamt of uh, for example, I would say my grandfather, I used to ask my grandfather, what is happiness for you? you know, and he would say, for me, happiness is me sitting on my porch in the evening and watching all my grandchildren play. And my children, at the end of the day, everybody's home and healthy and playing around. And that sound is my happiness. So that was his purpose. He wanted his family to always be together. Uh, but people had purposes. It wasn't you know, to acquire wealth or anything like that. It was more that they wanted their lives to be meaningful with conversation, deep conversation. You walk 10 miles to see a friend just to share a conversation with them, and then you walk back. You had a dream about a friend, you can walk 20 miles just to see them, and then you come back. So these were the simplicities, and, and, and you know, even people were not even interested in politics at some point. They would say, oh, leave politics to the politicians. This is unhealthy for our way of life, you know, and they would just relax, you know. But of course, things changed, you know, and people no longer were like that. 
but before before we go to the change, I mean, that's a, it's an incredible image to me, and it's and you, my first reaction is, oh, I, I wish we could make that happen where we are right now, and for some reason it seems almost unattainable. But the idea of walking ten miles to have what you call did you call it a deep conversation yep. with a friend? Yep. How meaningful, and that is meaningful. And you know what? Psychologists will tell you that one of the keys to mental health is feeling connected to other people. Yes, absolutely. And so it sounds like, you know, it, it was hard, you wouldn't want to, but it was hard to be alone yeah. growing up in your village in Sierra Leone. Yeah, no, you couldn't be alone. I mean, when you're a boy and you're as mischievous as I was, sometimes you, you wish you didn't grow up in a community where everybody was so connected because you can't get away with anything. You know, everybody was older than you is your aunt, uncle, and they looked after you, which meant they had the right to discipline you if you did something wrong. But you never felt alone. In an, in an African community, even if you are the only child of your immediate family, you don't feel like the only child because you have your cousins, you have your neighbors become your family members. Everybody is in your business, you know, to some extent. And the know. name of your village again was? I was born in Matrujong, but I grew up in Kabati. Kabati, and about how many people were in Kabati? Uh, give and take, during um, school seasons, when all the young people are gone, I would say probably they have maybe 150 people, and then later it, will, it grew. And you knew everybody? Yeah, you knew everybody. You, you, you will walk around, you will see somebody who will tell you, oh, I knew you, I was there when you were born. And you're thinking, how am I supposed to know that? You know, <laughs> but okay, thank you. So somebody will say, oh, I know your grandfather, I know your grandfather's father. And so there, there was that deep connection. Even to the fact that, you know, like the way ownership of property and land was not on paper. It was in the memory of the people. So people knew that this is your grandfather's land and that was sufficient. Nobody would ever try to do anything beyond that. It was just word and memory and word of mouth. And there were never land disputes? No. The way land was shared, this was all before. Things have changed now. But the way land was shared was that every year, uh, the community owns the land. No individual owns the land. But you can have portions of the land to live and to build a house. So they will get together and the chief will look at family sizes. The chief? Yes. The chief... And by the way, when we say chief, so I want to stop because... Again, it's, we, we know about, we've heard about chiefs, but I don't think we in America really know what a chief is. Who is the chief and how does he get to be the chief? Well, it, it comes from some family, but it also comes from the ability of people who are able to listen deeply to others. Somebody who can, because, you know, conversation and listening to other people, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it requires a kind of patience to really put your own thoughts aside and whatever you think about them and, and you know. And so they find people who have that capacity and also people who are able to deliberate between people to make sure that things are settled in a peaceful way who have that charisma to make people happy and who also wants to serve. So that's what the chief in those days, chief constituted of. And so the chief would gather everybody together and also everybody was part of the deliberation. So for example, if there was a dispute in the community in the evening, uh, a person will go around the town with a drum, uh, beating the drum and saying that there is a gathering tonight at the square, village square. A gathering at the square. Yeah, everybody must come because there's something the community needs to hear and decide on. People of all ages or was people there... People of all ages. My so grandfather would take me, yes, because they needed also the young people to start learning how this works. 
from, from a very young age. So when you're younger, in this, in this environment, you do, they don't allow you to talk. You just listen as a young person. And I used to ask my grandfather, why? Why can't the young people say something? He was like, because before you learn how to speak, you must learn how to listen. Otherwise, when you speak, you're always going to say things that are going to hurt people because you don't have the capacity to filter and think about what comes out. Because once it comes out of your mind, it's not going back. So they, they let young people learn conversation, learn how to actually listen. So that if there was a dispute, people would sit. One party will be asked to tell their part. Nobody says anything, explain what happened. And another party will be asked to explain what happened. They'll ask the witnesses and everybody will listen. And then the chief will say, I've heard and these are my thoughts on it. And they will ask another elder, what are your thoughts on what you heard? And then the community will decide together what the punishment is, what they think who was wrong, who was right, and they will get at the truth of what had happened. And the punishments were never punitive ones. They're always ones that were meant to rebuild whatever had been broken. So for example, if somebody and another person had a quarrel, the punishment was, okay, for five days you're gonna go with this guy to brush their farm. That was the punishment. Now from an outsider, it may seem like this is ridiculous. To brush know? their farm, yeah. which means what? To, to, to cultivate clear the, the farm, to clear the clear brush. The brush. And, but what this requires, when you spend time with somebody clearing the brush and making a farm, you are with them all day. You drink from the same god of water. You eat from the same plate. Eventually, you're going to talk about what has happened. And the two of you are going to find a way to repair. So they'll make you go five days, six days. If they don't see any improvement, they'll just add it. And then you two will repair it between you. So these were some of the punishments as a kid growing up. But how they distributed land was also based on the size of your family, you know. So if you have 10 kids, then of course, they gave you bigger land to make your farm or bigger land to build your house. And people will get together and help somebody build a house if they needed it or if the rains broke. But this, this, was, this is how I grew up. So there was always a sense in my head when I was growing up with the idea that there's individuality, but it never comes ahead of the community needs, you know, because each human being exists because of others. You know. So let me just switch nations, because last year at this Nantucket Book Festival, I interviewed a guy named Evan Osnos, who's with The New Yorker, spent a lot of years in China, and wrote a, a book that just won a, um, oh gosh, I think it was a, a finalist for the Pulitzer in nonfiction called The Age of Ambition. Hmm. And so ambition was a word that in Mandarin translates into wild heart. And, and this is getting back to your point, it used to be that the collective, the group, mm -hmm. was all important in China. You had to eliminate your individuality. So if somebody said you had a wild heart, it was a pejorative word, it was an insult, it could even get you into danger. Now, everything in China is about unleashing the ambition, mm -hmm. especially in business. And so now they have books in their self-help sections, how to raise a child with a wild heart. But it sounds like in your village and in your country, you had this balance. So people respected the individuality, but still it had to be within the, you know, within the structure of, is it good for the community? Exactly. It sounds almost idyllic. And now my mind is boggled as to how that could have been destroyed. And has it come back at all after the war? Not entirely. Some pockets of it have come back, but not how it used to be because the population has shifted. 
And of course, it, it was not ideal because we had, there were issues. People would fight sometimes, people would do things they were not supposed to be doing. But was there violence? Uh, not violence in the sense of like, you know, somebody murdering somebody, but there are always theft sometimes. There were, uh, you know, people would um, sleep with other people's wives that they were not supposed to do, and that would cause mayhem in the family, you know. There are always things, you know, somebody would impregnate somebody's some if when they were not yet married and and these the things that were frowned upon but anyway they find a way to repair so it wasn't that there was no but there was always an understanding that whatever happens in that community affects everybody in the community and everyone must have a watchful eye to make sure that the community is safe and that for example in my community i remember when you're a child growing up and you show that you have prospect, that you have an intelligence, you can study well, you can learn. The village would put money together to send you to school because they thought if a child from our village gets an education, it benefits all of us. And people put money together, we are not your immediate family, just everybody. Somebody will bring a bag of rice, somebody will bring some yam, somebody will bring some chickens to sell so that it will contribute to your education. So when you went to school, you knew you were going to school not for yourself, but for your village. You understand? So were this you, was the were mentality. Were you one of those children? Yeah, I was one of those kids. I, I was intelligent somewhat, I think. And how I did had they, a scholarship. How, how was your intelligence identified? Because, you know, we learn now that intelligence, part of it is genetic and part of it is how hard you work. And so how was, uh, did you demonstrate hard work or did they, did they just see something in you? Well, it's, it's hard work, but also this natural intelligence. For example, you know, as, as a young kid, you know, I was always asking a lot of questions. I was very curious. In fact, I was going to mention that because you asked your grandfather, the war started when you were, what, 12 years old? Y yes, 11. So, 11. 11. So you're telling me all this knowledge you got in the, your first 11 years of life, and you said you asked your grandfather what makes him happy. That's a very yeah, yeah. sort of astute, mature question for how old were you when you asked him? Uh, probably I was maybe eight or nine, but my grandfather was also a very wise man and my grandmother. So I spent a lot of time with the two of them. And so through that, I learned about a lot of things. And, uh, my, and I, I asked questions that I wasn't supposed to ask like sometimes. What? For example, uh, there was a story that, um, that was always told to children, which I actually tell in this first book when I was a kid. Uh, and the, question wo uh, the story was once there was a, mo a hunter who goes into the bush to hunt, and he raises his weapon to shoot a monkey, and the monkey spoke and said, if you shoot me, uh, your mother will die, and if you don't, your father will die. And so the question was, you know, what would you do if you were the hunter? Uh, this question was asked in front of your parents, and the whole community gathered. So I always said I wanted to go to the bathroom, you know, so I didn't have to answer the question, <laughs> or I came up with some excuse. So, but then afterwards, I'll ask my grandmother or my grandfather, can you just tell me the answer? I mean, I'm your grandson, you know, <laughs> just give me the medicine, you know, the, the secret. <laughs> and my grandfather would say to me, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, this is, this is the wrong form of curiosity. You have to find your own answer for this question. Then he wouldn't. So I asked questions that I was in. For example, my grandfather was also an imam. So he was a respected person in the community. He knew the Quran. He was teaching people how to read Arabic and things like that. So sometimes there were questions, for example, that you couldn't ask about God. Like, you know, who is this guy? You know, where does he come from? You know. Why should we believe that he's there? So I asked these things to my grandfather and he would tolerate me, but he wouldn't tolerate it from other people. And I remember asking him this because he would say to me, well, nobody can comprehend God. He's not the son of anyone and uh, he has no son. This is from the Quran, right? So I would say to him, well, if he's not the son of anyone, how did he come to be? <laughs>
you know, my grandfather would smile a little bit because he knew my mind was working as a kid, trying to understand, okay, he's my grandfather, he's the father of my mother or my father, you know, so if there's somebody, they must have somebody who... <laughs> You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it back to the conversation see this is fascinating because here we are deeply into the conversation and just now for the first time i you know you tell me your grandfather was an imam you know that you came from an islamic background yes you're, you're muslim and and this whole idea and and we're not hearing a lot of stories like that these days when news comes out of the Islamic world about that, that you were actually encouraged and recognized for questioning even the basic fundamentals of God and religion, so much so that you were identified as somebody that the community wanted to pay for to send to, a, to get a great education. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in those days, for example, you know, in, in Sierra Leone, is one of those countries that's very religiously tolerant. It's a very little known fact about Sierra Leone, where a heavy part of my family was Muslim, and I grew up with more than Muslim part of it. But then half of it was also Christian. So in Sierra Leone, you see this a lot. Families are mixed religion, and nobody tries to, to convert anybody. Sometimes even when people marry, if one is Christian, one is Muslim, they have two weddings, and there will be two parties, and people say, well, we're going to have two parties. So when I grew up with my grandfather, uh, when I started going to school, primary school, I went to uh, Islamic primary school. And after I was done with primary school, my grandfather said, you should apply for scholarship to the, to the Christian secondary school. It wasn't that it was the only good school, it was one of the best schools, but it wasn't the only one. He said, because you should go there and learn. And his, yeah, his friend was a reverend, his best friend. They would sit down and have long debates about religion and whatnot. So he said, go. So I, when I went to secondary school, I actually learned the Bible. I learned the Quran with my grandfather. And when I went to secondary school, I learned the entire Bible. I read the whole thing. So when I come, I will tell my grandfather about it. And this was how old were you at this point? At this point, uh, I was, what, like uh, 11 now. You know, I had a lot of uh, what they call double promotion. because You skipped I, grades. Yeah, this, I skipped grades somewhat. For example, when I started class one, you didn't talk about this in your book. No, because there was, it was not a... You got into the war pretty I quickly. I got into the war. The, I wanted to tell a story that moved very quickly instead of bogging down too much about my background. But yeah, but I, you want to know something? And we're going to get to the war, but I want, I, want, I want to say that this helps explain a lot to me how you were able to emerge and provide a voice. I mean, this essential voice to describe the war because it perplexed me. In fact, during you know, you talk about you were only 12, and you knew Shakespeare by heart, certain passages yeah. from Shakespeare. What an education you got before you were even in high school. Yeah, Sierra Leone, you know, former British colonies have a very rigorous educational system. And of course, when I was in primary school, we weren't reading the hard Shakespeare. They had simplified versions of it uh, that they would teach to you. You know. Did those teachers encourage questioning as much as your grandfather did? And not as much as my grandfather did, <laughs> I would have to say. There were some exceptional teachers who would, uh, but my, my, my questioning was more to my grandfather and my grandmother. I felt I could. But through them, I learned to think a lot. So even when I was in school, when somebody would say something to me, I always questioned knowledge. I grew up with, with that context. 
you know, for example, I would go walking with my grandfather sometimes. He was also, he, he knew medicine, uh, like roots and plants, and he would and teach me about it, you know. And so I will, I will go for long walks. I realize actually as, I, as, I, as I'm getting older that I have certain aspects of my grandfather, which is that whenever we walked, I walked behind him and his hands were always behind his back, crossed like this. And nowadays I'm 30 something, so I find myself walking sometimes like this. <laughs> so I will laugh because it will bring back that memory to me. But we would walk and he would just tell me stories about things. He would explain things to me and he would ask me questions. I'll tell you a very funny story. So there are also a lot of things in my village that they, they allow you to experience things. Because my grandfather always told me that when you experience something, that information becomes part of you. It becomes part of your blood, your veins, and everything. So you have to learn with patience to do things. So one of the things was picking a coconut. For picking a coconut. Coconut. If you're a young boy, as soon as you are of an age, five, six, Nobody will give you a coconut anymore if you're a boy. Only if you're a girl. If you want a coconut, they say, go pick it yourself. And so, when you went to climb the coconut tree, each time you, the first time you climb a coconut tree, you will fall. And nobody will say anything. They will let you fall so that you will learn why you fell. They won't tell you ahead of time. Of course, when I was a boy, I was very mischievous. So when somebody was in the coconut tree, Picking, I would just pick one up and run away and go and eat it. By the time they came down, I could get the beating, but I had already had the coconut. So my grandfather said, no, 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 I don't do it like that. So I did that. But I, at some point, I couldn't do that anymore because everybody knew my ammo. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't. Everyone knew your Everybody knew your my ammo. Yeah, they, they, knew, they knew that I was going to do this. So they, okay, don't let that boy come near the coconut. But when you climb the coconut tree the first time, you don't know, is that, when you see the coconuts hanging, the first, um, the, the vine that's coming from it, just the, the one that has the flower on it and things like that, the first two, the cones, I guess, they're called the cones. The cones, the first two or three cones are always rotten. So it's maybe the third or fourth or fifth one that's actually stronger because it's, 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 it's green and fresh. Because as the coconut uh, grows, it sheds the cone so that it can get taller. So when you climb as a first time climber, you don't know that. So after you've climbed, you've climbed, you've gotten to this point, you try to pull yourself up with the first one and you come crashing down. So that's the knowledge they don't tell you because they want you to experience it yourself. You know, you know it's <laughs> and then they will laugh. Well, they will be sitting there, the older people, and they, as you're climbing, they're talking and saying, hey, everyone is going to fall, let's give <laughs> You know, it, it, it's fascinating because there are there is a phenomenon now that is written about a lot in the United States about something called over-parenting mm. or extreme parenting. And it's, you know, it's, it's the phenomenon where parents will try to pave the way for their children to experience success. And in fact, I've interviewed on this podcast a guy named Michael Thompson who has written about this and, and says, you know, parents take on too much for their children and don't allow them to take on challenges enough. Mm. By the time they get to college, it's a shock because they haven't experienced that repetitive failure and learning from their mistakes. And what you're telling me is just like it, there was this wisdom in this community mm passed down from generation to generation. And so now I have to make the transition because I read your account, your, your memoir. During all the violence, there was never a word of religion. So the war was not about religion. No. There was never a word about scarcity of resources. 
it seemed like you had everything you needed. Is that roughly true? We didn't have everything we needed because during the war you couldn't be in certain places where you can access. For example, the villages were now abandoned. You know. Well, I'm talking about before the war. Before no, the be war before started. Before the war, there was everything. Before the everything. war, there was everything. You didn't so usu much, usually you know? wars break out when there's some scare conflict over resources. Mm. Do you understand to this day why this war started? Yes, the war started out of political. It was a it was a purely political thing, and the politics was more because the government was beginning to oppress people not because of resources but because of their freedom to exist and to think and to question and to do the, you know, it wasn't allowing them to do that anymore. And so actually the revolution started, it was supposed to be a peaceful one. They had an intellectual branch, it started at the university. The RUF, the rebel group that started the war in Sierra Leone, started as an organization that wanted to topple this government because they didn't like the ideology that was being fostered, which was that it was pushing more and more of changing the way life was in the country, which was this simplicity. And pretty much they were selling the country to all the people. Like for example, there began to come about times where all of a sudden bulldozers would show up in your village and they would start knocking down trees. And sometimes even uh, cleaning cemeteries to look for minerals. I've, as a child, I so saw it was this. About, it was about mining. It was about mining. Uh, and it was also about the politicians getting money for making shady deals that then would destroy the land. And land is very sacred also to, 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 to us. And, and given the power, and we, you, you alluded to this, but the, you know, the, the respect that elders had in the communities, these elders were just not a match for the central government? Exactly, that's also what started to happen before. If the, the people who were in power before, in, at the highest level in politics, if they wanted, for example, to come to a province, they would call the elders and talk to them. What kind of, and the elders would talk to them about their people. Because those politicians were raised in villages or not. Exactly. Some of them were not. But, but at some point, these politicians who are now in the capital city, they cut themselves up. They began to look at their people as primitive. So they began to not even consider them when they wanted. They would just sign deals for their land without, as I mentioned earlier, land was a community. And was, so these are the things that were beginning to happen in the country. And so everybody was like, we, we, we got to get involved in politics now. We didn't like it before, but otherwise these, they're doing things that are going to change the nature of our lives. So actually when the revolution started, it was to get rid of this particular government that was started doing that. And what was the you know? plan to make it peaceful? How did they plan? How did the well, RUF they, plan to make it peaceful? Well, they, they wanted to the next election. They wanted to uh, to have an election, uh, the one that was coming up. They wanted to topple, to get raise enough consciousness in the country for people to vote for somebody different and not for that political party. But then the president Shaka Stevens was in power, changed the constitution without telling anybody and said that it was now a one-party state, and the only sole legal political party was his party. And this was what year, roughly? This was around 1988. And you were born? I was born in 80, so I was eight years. Now, I know this from back. Right, I didn't know right. this you at the time. You didn't know when you were eight you know, years old. But. Now I read all the stuff. But I remember when these things were happening. And so he changed the constitution. And so there was no political party. And then all of a sudden, people were missing. Anybody who said something against the government were missing. And they were tortured, they were killed, and their body would be found somewhere. And so that's how he started. And so it was really neat. And so this guy, he wasn't around when the war started, Shaka Stevens. He died. 
He was sick out of natural causes. He died, but before he died, he gave power to another guy without any election. He liked some guy who was in the military. He took him out of the military, made him a civilian, and gave him power. And his name was Joseph Saidumomo. This guy was not even well educated. He didn't finish secondary school, and so he didn't know what to do. So I remember this is when politics began to touch me. So this was now 89. You know, I remember nine years old. I remember the first time I realized that things were changing was when my father woke me up very, very late at night. I was very sleepy. It must have been 2, 3 a.m. And said, because some of the things we couldn't grow or couldn't get were like salt. So we wanted to, you had to buy salt from somebody who was selling it. And he said, come with me. We're going to go buy salt. So we walked for quite a while, about an hour or more, and went in the middle of the forest, and there was a guy with a bag of salt selling it to people. At 2, 3 in the morning. Yeah, and I asked my father, why, why are we buying salt at 2 or 3 in the morning? Because we never bought salt at 2 or 3 in the morning. Why in the forest? And so my father explained to me they can't sell it anymore in the open. And I, I didn't understand what that meant until much later. Because what had happened, this guy had decided uh, to do what he called price control. And he was just trying to... Control, the, leader, the leader of the government. The new leader, yeah. And his price control was not subsidizing people. Was he, he hired a whole group of military guys who were trench coats with Israeli Uzis in them. And they would come to towns and put people under gunpoint and fix the price of whatever they wanted them to sell. This was price control. So all the shops closed that had the salt and things like that. So if you wanted to pay the right price, you had to meet somebody deep in the forest to be able to get. So this is when things began to shift in the country. So eventually, uh, um, this peaceful group, REF, that wanted, they realized that this, there's never going to be an election because the, any gathering they do will be illegal. So they decided that they needed to run the revolution. They needed to have a military branch. And the military branch was run by a guy called Fode Sanko, who was the rebel leader. And so by the time the revolution could now get jump-started from the military aspect of it, he killed off all the intellectual branch. So when he jump-started the war, it's only the military branch and they didn't know how to manage the ideology. So now you had you know? a government controlled by an uneducated military guy, yeah. and you had a rebel group controlled by an uneducated military guy. Exactly, a corporal, an educated military guy, and so it became a bloodbath. And this is where now I have to get into your story, and, and you tell me how comfortable, are you comfortable? Yes, yes You've course. told it a million times, and, and clearly you've come to grips with it, and, yes. and you're a very healthy adult. But I remember how quickly it turned in your story. You know, and, and that's the way it often happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there are a lot of warning signs. Mm. And I know recently I was looking at your Twitter account and you tweeted a very long, fascinating interview from many years ago in Paris with Elie Wiesel. Mm. And Elie Wiesel talks about how they would hear stories in his little Hungarian village for a long time about things that were happening, but people didn't believe it. Yeah. And that he actually he has a, a, a person who he remembers as a child called his name, and I, I interviewed Elie Wiesel about this. It was mm. called Moisha the Beetle. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's a beetle? I asked him, B-E-A-D-L-E. -E. He was like the poorest man in town, basically. And people thought he was a little crazy. No, he wasn't a trustworthy source, but he had seen some things. Mm -hmm. He had left town and come back and told these horrific stories and nobody believed him yeah. except Elie Wiesel. He said, but I couldn't do anything about it, I was a child. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you hear and you, there's time still to leave, but sometimes it just happens yeah. like that and it sounds like it was the latter for your village. Yes, I mean, we, we heard it, but again, this is the thing. I think there's something about human beings we don't want to believe that 
people who look like us or there's violence coming and brewing. We want to believe that nothing is ever going to change the way our lives are. So when I was a kid, we hear about it. People come and say, you know, people come to our town and be like, there's a war. And this is what it's beginning to do. And nobody will believe it. Just like you mentioned, Ellie was there. People will be like, no, that will never happen here. We're so nice people. We have a community. We're kind to each other. That doesn't happen in this country. When people would come, and they were from the eastern part where the war started, they would say, they're killing everybody. And they're also burning towns. They're recruiting children. And people would be like, yeah, these people are making it up. We said that. And then all of a sudden, it reached us. And the way the war reached you one day is like it, you are at school or maybe you are at the river and the town is attacked or the village is attacked and you hear gunshots and everybody starts running for their lives. Nobody's prepared because nobody had thought that they would run. Do you still have a vivid memory of the day that happened? Yes, the, the first time for me when it happened, I'd actually left with my older brother and another friend. We were in this, uh, at this point we had moved to a smaller town, which is a mining company that my father worked for. And we had gone to another town for, for a talent show. And through this mining company came American popular culture. It was an American-Australian mining company. They were mining some minerals there. And so we, through this, we got introduced to American hip-hop through the days of Yo! MTV rap, you know? <laughs> so we would watch the television at the mining headquarters. So we learned how to dance, the MC Hammer, and all this stuff. So we had gone to a talent show when the war reached my town. And what the first encounter with it was that we started seeing people coming. We were trying to go back home and we started encountering people running from the war, shot in different parts of their body. There was a man carrying his dead child in his arms. And I'd never seen anything like this in my, in my country. So we couldn't believe it. We just like, and you were at this time 12 years old. Yeah. You know, and suddenly, we couldn't be, suddenly it was like we can't go home. And we tried to go, but we can't go home anymore. And we don't know where our parents are. So we tried to look for our parents, but we couldn't. And then the war started coming our direction. And I remember I was in Matrujong, which is where I was attacked, uh, when they came. And they just, when they would come, They, in the this rebels, case, was the rebels. Yes, when they arrive at a the town, they would start shooting in the air. They would surround the town, and they would start shooting in there because they don't want anybody to leave. They want to capture the women. They want to capture the children so they can recruit them. But they also want people to fear them. So. They start shooting in the air, but when they realize that people are running and escaping, they start shooting at people, like deliberately killing. Because they didn't want, they did not want those people to escape. Exactly. Because if you escape, you go to the next town, you tell them they are there, then they may not be able to surprise that town. So, so you're literally shooting the potential messengers. Exactly. So they will shoot, so then you can imagine, and we were just running for our lives in chaos and people are trampling upon each other sometimes, you're not strong enough. You know, and the only one opening was along the swamp that they didn't necessarily surround the opening path. But they had a guy in, 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 that had climbed one of the towers because this town had a, a river and had a jetty. So there was a tower there and he climbed there with a machine gun. He was just mowing anybody who was going. And somehow, some of us were able to leave that town and run out of it. So myself and my brother and some friends, and we just ran and ran and ran for hours, not knowing where were we going. We're just running away from the gunshot. And so that's really the first time that war came into my life. After a while, I learned how to run from war. I learned how to expect that it was coming. You could almost smell it. You, it came out of experience, you know? What happens in war, particularly as a child in my case, as soon as war reaches you, you grew up. You became an adult in the sense that you are now in charge of your life. You had to make decisions which way to run, where to look for food, 
when to hide, where to hide, who to trust. These are things you'd never thought of, but somehow you, you have to automatically learn how to do them. And so that's pretty much what happened with my life, and we just started running. And prior to this, because the country was so peaceful, I had never left my area of the country. So I didn't even know what the rest of the country was like, or to decide that I could go this way and go there. Did you even have a sense of, of the direction you were running in, or what towns were available to you? It was just, if the gunshots came this way, you went that way. That was it. You know. and, but at some point, how many weeks, how many months, the war caught up with you and you could not run anymore? No, I could not run anymore. And it, it how, how, how long did that take? Well, I, I, start, I was running from the war between, the war in Sierra Leone went on for about 11 years. So for the first year that it came into my life, for that first eight, nine months, I was constantly running for my life, hoping I could find my family. And then I found my family, but they were all killed, you know, like my two brothers, I separated from my older brother that I was running with in the beginning. And then I was trying to look, I was with a group of other kids who were in the same position, we were trying to look for families. So sometimes we encounter people on the run who we knew from before and they would tell us, oh, we'd seen somebody from your family in this village. And then we would say, well, where's that direction? So sometimes we will run towards that direction. And so I'd arrive in a village where my, my family was supposed to be, including the kids that I was with. And we had arrived maybe a few minutes after a rebel raid had happened there, so they had killed everybody in that, pretty much, you can see the execution. They just went around and lined everybody on the floor and killed, so all my family was killed. So my two brothers and my mother and father were killed. All in the same village? All in the same village. They have somehow found each other, but I wasn't with them. That's the only reason why I'm alive. If I had found them earlier, I probably would have been killed with them. So when you, when you learned of that? I lost hope in everything. Because part of the, the, the desire I had to run was that I could find them. But now there was nothing to find anymore. So I literally, it was like, there's no point. But I was with a group of other kids who had had similar experiences, but some of them were stronger than most of us. So we kept giving each other the strength and the hope to move on. And shortly after that, we ended up going to a military base. At this point, we didn't really understand that the military too was doing the same thing that the rebels were doing because the central military has sort of splintered. So there was no central command. So all the little battalions were kind of pillaging the countryside and taking territory so that they can have access to diamond mines and then make their own money and whatnot. So everybody became a free agent for themselves in a way. If so that's was, so that, that calculation, the greed, was always there. It wasn't just we have to take this town for strategic reasons. It's we've got to get the money. We've got to yeah. get the mines. Yeah. Where they would, they would tell everybody that it was strategic reason it was for their own good. They are very good. They, they, they psychologic, there was, a, there was a, a rhetoric that they sold to everybody who had lost family, that if so revenge is to make sure that what had happened to you doesn't happen to other people. So therefore we must take that town. But the top guys knew that that town was strategic for guarding these mines. And, and it, if you have access to that mines, then you can sell that, this and that, you know. And, and I remember in, in your memoir, you talk about this lieutenant yeah. who goes to you personally and, and I guess to the other boys your age, and he gave you a choice. Yep. It was not really a choice. No, but it was but a how did pretense. he present it? He presented he, it as a choice. He, he presented, he says, pretty much, if you stay here, you're going to have to fight. And this requires us to get rid of this evil that's happening in this country. And this requires you to get revenge for your families. And this requires you to make sure that this doesn't happen to others. Of course, who wouldn't want that? 
we are all so angry, we wanted some explanation. And But the second one, if you don't want to do any of these things, you have to leave. If you stay here, you have to be a part of it, otherwise you have to leave. And by the way... And then when you try to leave, they will shoot you. Oh, is that right? Exactly. So, because each time somebody was trying to leave, they will bring their body back and they will show to everybody. We didn't shoot them, they will say to you. They tried to leave and then they got hurt by the other guys on the other side, but everybody knew it was not true. So you knew that your only chances to live was to stay and join. And maybe, just maybe, you can live, you can survive. So as a 12-year-old boy, they put what I kind of... I was 13 at this point. 13, now. they put what kind of weapon in your hand? Well, in the beginning, they don't give you, just give you the weapon. They actually test you physically. So we run around, we do some commands, we crawl, we do all kinds of things. And then they give you the AK-47 without the magazine, without the bullet. And all of us were afraid, we were shaking and nervous. And they said, hey, you know, this is going to be your life. This is going to be what gives you access to food, what makes you, makes you not stop running, what makes you protect yourself and your friends and anybody you think you care about. This is going to be the only tool that's going to help do that. And at that moment, it was the truth. It was the truth at the moment. It was the truth. And it was the most... Even though we were coerced into it, it was the only rational choice. It was the only choice left. And so you've got to take it. So of course we started training. Put the, but while you're training, you could hear the war. So our training wasn't like some, some soldiers would train for years and then they would go into war. Maybe not. We trained for less than a week and then we were in battle. And your first, do you remember that first battle? I remember the very first battle. I've never been so afraid to go anywhere in my life as I was that day. First of all, you're seeing other soldiers being brought up and they're shot up, you know. Uh, you're, see, you're, see, you're seeing wounded soldiers yeah, coming back. Yeah, they're wounded, yeah. They're coming back wounded. Some of them, you know, are brought and they die and blood is come everywhere. And so we're going and we're preparing and ammunition and the commander is telling us, take more ammunition. That's the only thing you need when you're out there. Everything else is not necessary. So, you know, There's always a balance because... If you take too much ammunition, you, you can't, can't move fast. Exactly. So how did you, as a, so now as a 13-year-old, yeah, yeah. you needed to decide. Yeah, well, you took enough, you know, because that's why they did the physical exercise in the beginning. You took enough that you can still be mobile. But also the thing about it is that um, uh, when we went to fight, when people were killed, you took their ammunition. You didn't take their body or bury them, even your friends. You just took their ammunition and they continued on. So then, before we went, actually, they gave us these little tablets before we went. And this was my introduction to drugs. I, didn't, I don't really know what the tablet was. It was probably some amphetamine they you gave still it don't to us. Know. I still don't know. I but, don't. But, but you know it was an amphetamine because it kept you up. Yeah, because, so they gave it to us, and then uh, there was a look on our face saying, that, what is this? And then the, com uh, the, the lieutenant said, you know, this is to make you strong. And of course, everybody wants to be strong and invisible. You're going to fight. You've seen people body brought. It's okay. If it's, that's the risk, you take it. And then you take it and you realize that you can't even feel your own skin sometimes. So then we went to fight. The first day when we went, I was with this little boy who was much younger than I was. Probably was nine years old. His gun was, he couldn't even, his gun was taller than him. He had to carry it like this. And if you hold it like this, he would drag. And so we, we went and we made an ambush. We were waiting for another group coming. And they began to come, the, the rebel group, right? We could see them. But guess what? They looked like us. They were children. And they looked just as lost on their face like we did. 
but they were now our enemy, you know. And so that must have been, was that a shock to you that now, you were facing children? Who look like me, just Sierra Leoneans, yes. You know? And how long did it take, you had to pull the trigger? Well, were, I didn't were... pull the trigger in the beginning, and then there was a firefight, you know, and then people were gone, being killed on my side, I could see. People being killed, and this little boy was killed. They are shot an RPG that then, and I guess the fragments and the force of it, lifted him up and he fell on a tree trunk, and the tree trunk pretty much went through him. You know, and so when I was seen that there was blood all over the place, you know, and at some point I just snapped. I realized that if I don't shoot this weapon, I'm gonna die. So then I just started shooting. And that was the beginning of my war life, you know. It changed everything. Did you see who you were shooting at? Yeah, in the beginning I, I shot at somebody. I saw them and after that I just shot. Anything that moved, I wasn't on our side. The other thing you have to realize about our war was very messy, which is that not only were we fighting people who look like us, but sometimes there's no distinction because we, we didn't have enough money, or I guess the, the groups didn't have, they didn't care about that, we just had more ammunition. So it's not like we had a full-on combat gear and then the rebels had civilian clothes. We had mixed match of things, whatever you could find, you take. How did you know who was on your the side? The only distinguishing factor was that we would tie our heads with a green cloth and the rebels always tied their head with a red cloth. But this works during the day. So if you're fighting at night, you can't see the red cloth or the green cloth. And of course, you're not gonna ask, hey, man, over there, are you one of us? This will get you killed. So you just shot, and then you hoped I was in one of your people. You know, it was complete madness. There's no helmet, no boots. We were like barefoot sometimes, flip-flops, you know, it was complete madness. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. To play it, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Back to the conversation. And all the while, and so it was, would you fight every day, every week? Or sometimes there were weeks where there was no fight, and then... There were some weeks where things were slowed down. In the rainy season, things would slow down a little bit because it's raining a lot, so people would stop, you know? But there was always some kind of form of violence. We fought a lot, and if we weren't fighting, there was something. The commanders were very smart. They made sure that there was always a violent activity so that the young people would not stop to think. We didn't even like to stop and think also. We got accustomed because when you stopped, you thought about what was going on and then it disturbed you, know, you even now more. Now I have to come back to because that childhood of yours was all about listening and digesting information and then asking questions. And this is the opposite of that. And then one of the things that struck me in the book is when you weren't fighting, you were watching movies about war. Do you yeah. remember the movies? Yeah, Rambo, Commando. These are films we were watching, you know. You were watching those and they were feeding you many more drugs than just that pill. Tell me about the drugs they gave you. Well, you know, we, the common marijuana we smoked a lot and at some point people didn't even like it because it had no more effect because we had gotten so addicted to other kinds of drugs. The amphetamines were still coming. And then somebody came up with an even newer, I don't know who came up with it, but somehow, our commander told us about and he started implementing, which is a thing that was very popular in West African civil wars. It's called Brown Brown. Brown Brown. Yes, and Brown Brown is a combination of cocaine and some gunpowder or heroin and some gunpowder. What does the gunpowder do? Uh, I, I mean, it's, I think it does something crazy because when you take this stuff, you can't feel yourself for weeks. You can't you, feel. You can't feel. Like we would like take phys it. Physically, you can't Physically, feel. you can't feel your own body. You know you're there, but for example, somebody will put a knife through your arm and you won't feel it. You'll just be like, oh, 
That's interesting. So sometimes we'll go fight and we'll come back and you have bullet piercings. Uh, you've been shot, you would know. And somebody says, I think you were shot. And you'd be like, oh, I, I didn't even notice. And you can't sleep and you have this energy, tremendous energy that sometimes you're even perspiring. If you sit in one place, you just like... And so of course we became addicted to it. So we, we were on the high. As soon as your high came down, you wanted more. So we would go to things that nowadays, I think about it sometimes, if you tell me to go to some of the things that I went to to fight, in my right mind I will not go. But at that time I felt nothing's gonna happen, I would just run into a fight and I will, you know. So, but when we watch these Rambo films, people wanted to reenact some of it. So sometimes we'd go out and try to do what we saw in the film. But now we actually can do it in reality. We had operations that were like Operation No Living Thing, for example. Oper I want to say those words, Operation No, no Living, Living Thing. Thing. So the commander would say, all right, there's a group that's trying to encroach on our territory and we need to let them know that they can't do it. So we're going to XYZ village and anybody who's there has cooperated with them and even the guys carrying the gun, nothing that moves besides us should be alive. That was the order. And everybody said yes, and we go. And just like we said, we go and we shoot everything including the chickens, anything that breeds is dead. And then we come back and we continue watching the Rambo film. And that had to have been, and I imagine, people of all ages. Yeah, but that, that, this is the thing. Earlier I was mentioning about the respect that was there for elders. One of the ways when the war started that it began to change this country and the traditions that had existed is that the way they recruited some young people, they will force them to kill their own family members, to shoot at the elders. So they no longer belong to a community. They no longer had the knowledge base. And when you shot somebody in your community, you can no longer go back to it. So you don't have any, anywhere to go. So then you belong to the group. Adults also began to see children differently. They no longer saw children as just innocent kids who need to learn, they feared them. So even before I joined the war, when I was running from the war, and even when I was in the war, when you come in a town, a group of kids together, usually when you see a group of kids together, it's a moment of joy, but no longer in Sierra Leone at the time during the war. When you saw a group of kids together, you became very suspicious because they could be part of a rebel group and they're trying to spy in the area. So even your innocence became a threat to your life. And, you know, it, it reminds me of, uh I remember when I was working at CNN, one of, one of our great reporters, Candy Crowley, did a story, it was, it was in the run-up to the war in Iraq, and she went to many of the veterans of wars who were serving in the United States Congress. And one of the common themes was the trauma they suffered, not from their buddies being killed, but from them killing other people. Yeah. And it sounds like, given the nature of the fighting that you were doing village to village, you were killing people at close range. Absolutely. Like you were seeing them. Yeah, yeah. And see. sometimes it was with bullets, was it, and sometimes with bayonets, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. And, I mean, that clearly, and I know from your memoir, that traumatized you. And so I almost want to fast forward now because I want to encourage people to just read A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier by you, Ishmael Bea, and also your, your novel, Radiance of Tomorrow, which is in many ways about the healing process. So without going into more detail, because people can get much more detail in, in your memoir, so we let's fast forward now, after, what was it, three years of, of this mm -hmm. trauma and killing, 
and wondering if tomorrow, if not even wondering if you're going to die, because it no, sounded I like it was just care. automatic. Yeah. It was just you had you were doing what you had to do. Yeah, and I didn't really care because I had nothing left. You had no, and you know what? I'm I have to come back to this Elie Wiesel story because I asked him, "Did you read Night?" Yes, I read Night. And you'll notice at Night, it's a, it's a pretty short book, and and there's a, a lot of detail in there, and it's really in many ways uh, well. There's no such thing as the definitive book on any, you know, horrific thing. But on the Holocaust, this is the first book I would think people should read. And I can't remember if it's 110, 115 pages, 120, but once Elie Wiesel's father dies, and he came so close to surviving the concentration camps, if you remember, mm -hmm. couldn't quite hold on. The Allies were coming close. And the book ends shortly after his father dies, and I asked Elie Wiesel about that. It's like, you know, there, there wasn't a lot in there. He said, you know what, I was, I was just living for my father. You know, for, all, for those years when we were in the concentration camps, I was surviving because I knew without me, he couldn't survive. And once my father died, I felt it's, it's, it's all over. And he survived Elie Wiesel, but he didn't have much to write about at the time in terms of his experiences after that because mm -hmm. I think it just numbed him. And yeah. this is in many ways what you're describing. You exactly. lost everybody you cared about to your knowledge. So, so you're numb. And, and I think you become, and that's why the commanders go after kids who are in that position because you become the most dangerous person in the world because you don't have anything to lose. You've lost everything. You don't care for your own life. You're so angry. You're looking to belong to something, to a community again. And the only community presented to you is the armed group. And then, one day, in the middle of all this, and you're a survivor, and you're with these other armed people, and some people in some very clean outfits come. <laughs> Describe the day you were pulled out of the war. We didn't have many visitors, you know, and um, if there were ones, they were the ones who were coming to sell the weapons and bring in the drugs, so those we knew. So when somebody came from the city or from wherever they were coming from that was different from the bush that we were fighting in you could smell them like 15 miles away you know because they smell good they look clean we're running up and down the bush all the time so we, we know how we look so i remember seeing these people they were wearing very clean jeans and t-shirts with like this logo of somebody holding a child like this i'd never seen them actually in my mind i thought ah oh, maybe this is a some mercenary group that's gonna fight with us or something. That's what I thought, because that's the only mindset I could think in. A mercenary group. Yeah, I thought, hey, okay, maybe a mercenary, because at some point in the war, people were hiring different mercenary groups to work with them. So I thought, ah, oh, okay, we're gonna expand. <laughs> you know, and there were some, some white people, and then there were some local people, and they chatted with the commander, and the way they were talking with our commander, it looked like they, they, they had come a few times, but I wasn't at that particular base. I'd just come to buck up on ammunition, and then they ask all of us to line up, you know, and I'm thinking, this is strange. So we all lined up and they come and they look at us and then the commander just points at people and they, and they write notes and, they, and then they pull us aside and try to talk to us. Some of us, I was very reluctant because I was like, I don't know who these people are. And I knew that I knew how to survive in the life that I was in. Why was I going to leave it to make myself vulnerable again? And the commander told us, these people will take you and they will give you another life. I wasn't happy. And these were UNICEF people? These were UNICEF people. I didn't know who they were. I'd never heard of UNICEF before. You know, I grew up in a small village, you know. I didn't know who they were. So then we were put in the truck. We were disarmed, our arm, and which I was not happy about. I was not one of those kids who was like, wow, I've been disarmed. Because I had come to know war, and I, 
and the kids that I'd fought with had become my new family and I didn't want to be separated and not all of us were taken. For many years I thought about why was I taken, why was I selected. It wasn't because the commander liked me or anything. I realized much later because later in my life I do the same work where I go with UNICEF workers in the field and we try to negotiate the release of children. And the only reason why I was selected is because I look more like a kid. All of us who were selected that they look like children so you couldn't dispute our age. Because often the commanders who argue that, well, that one is not the kid. He's not under 18, he's 19. So kids who were much taller and had more muscular, but looked like we're our age, were not giving up that day. But we look like kids, you couldn't deny that. So here we are, and, and by the way, what I'm gonna do is, uh, without having you get into this, I wanna, again, steer people to your memoir for this, because it talks about that transition to rehabilitating you, which was, a, it sounds like a nine month transition, and I'll fast forward it for, for, for the listeners. You found an uncle yes. in the capital, of Sierra Leone, Freetown, and he took you into his family, mm -hmm. and it took a, a good nine months for you to regain trust in people and become yourself again, really. Yeah, well, I started becoming myself. Started. It took many more years for me to really. Do, do you feel like, like now the, clearly the memories of everything are so clear, and I remember you talking in the book, uh, speaking in the book about the migraine headaches you would get. Do you still get migraines? Not as much anymore. They come every now and then, but not as frequently as they used to. Do you get nightmares? Yeah, every now. It's, you know, these things, uh, the nightmares, the migraines, uh, some tendencies that you develop, these are prices you pay for surviving such things, I think. The prices you pay. You know, because so many people didn't survive, you know. So for the rest of my life, I'll have memories of war. For the rest of my life, I remember when I was in high school, I used to look at my friends. And, this is high school in? In New York. And I always used to want to tell them that they should be so happy about the fact that they are naive about certain things in the world that they will never get to know them. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of blessing. You know, I asked, you know? I asked, I don't know if you know, the, do you remember the, uh, the movie Hotel Rwanda? Yes. And uh, that was based on a book about the, uh, a Paul, man. Paul Rusasabagina, yeah. Paul Rusasabagina, yeah. And, and he came through the CNN newsroom when I was working there once. And I, and I asked him, I, everybody asks Elie Wiesel this question, and people who have been through these horrific things and genocide, I said, you know, because his, his brother and sister-in-law or his, his immediate relatives died, but the children survived, so he took them in. Mm. I said, how old were they when you told them what happened? He said, I, I told them little pieces over time, mm -hmm. almost to inoculate them, because he said it was too much to yeah. tell them all at once. And so, you know, this is the same thing with my children. I mean, they, they, they stopped reading your memoir because I think they wanted to protect themselves a little bit. At some point, they're gonna get all that knowledge. Yeah. And they have to, as a citizen of the world, you have to know this. Yes, yes. But not at 11 or 12 or 13 yeah, you or 14, can, you can, not you when you were your age living it. Yeah, yeah. So to fast forward, so they took you out, and, and I'll just say briefly, even when you were in Freetown and now safe, the war came to Freetown, you almost didn't survive there, and that people will read about that. Mm. But then you were picked to go to the United Nations just for a brief time to make a presentation with children from other war zones about the, you know, what it's like to be a child in a war zone. And you met somebody there who ended up becoming a very important part of your life. And just tell me about her. 
Yeah, well, my, my mom, uh, Laura, Laura Sims, um, who lives in New York, um, as Jewish-American woman, um, she was one of the people who were part of this conference that I came to at the UN. She was one of the facilitators. And everybody was introducing themselves as, you know, I'm a psychologist and this, and then she said, I'm a storyteller. And so I was immediately drawn to that because I come from that tradition and that title is very revered. So I thought, oh, first of all, how is this possible? She's like a white woman, you know, in New York, you know, she's... So then I became friends with her while I was here and then I left back to Sierra Leone and she kept in touch with me. So when the war reached the capital city, you know, I had the, there was a possibility again I could be drawn into the war to fight a second time around. And so she because of your age, because of my age, but also because I had the skills. When they came to the city, they were looking for people who had fought before, so they don't need to train you anymore. They just give you the weapon. So my former commanders were now in town, so it became very difficult for me to live there. And because I had this passport, I had traveled before. It allowed me to move a little quicker, not too fast, but more than other people. So I found a way to call her, collect, and she talked to me, and she said, "Get out of the country." Get out and we'll figure it out. Go to the next country, no matter what it takes, do it. I don't want you to be there. Cause, and she said, you have potential, and I want to make sure I do something about that. But I can't do it if you stay in Sierra Leone. You, the village elders in your town saw the potential, and they sent you to school in Alora Sims. Yeah. And that's how my journey to the U.S. started. And she did everything she could, and she became my mother. At a time when most people were afraid of somebody like me, but she saw me just as a child who needed a home, who needed a mother. And that really touched me very deeply because most people that I encountered were always afraid. Once they knew I was a child soldier, I'd been one, it was like everything. They didn't even want to be left in the same room with me alone, you know? I guess the fear is, you know, maybe he'll snap. Exactly. This happened when I also, my mom took me around to apply for schools, to get into high school in the US. Most of the parents didn't want me to be in schools with their children. Because they thought, what if he snaps and then he goes and does something to our kids? And if you were set, and you were what? How old? Seventeen at the yeah, time. Yeah, I was seventeen. And and if, did anybody ever ask you that directly? No, I mean, the, some they said it. They didn't ask me directly. They said it to my mom. What would you have said to them? No, I was first of all, I laughed when I heard them, and I said to them, if anything, I was the last person to snap because I knew violence, the reality of it. I'd lived it. I wasn't somebody fascinated by the idea of it. I knew what it would do to your soul, to your spirit. I knew what it would do to you. So I was the last person who would, was thinking about that. In fact, I found my friends so funny sometimes. They were so, some of them were so enticed by violence sometimes. They think it was cool to do this, to do that. And I used to laugh. Actually, when I was in school, my friends always used to look at me and be like, how come nothing bothers you? And I was like, a lot of things bother me, but not the ones that are bothering you. <laughs> you know, like if somebody was writing an essay and the computer did something and they lost their essay, they were like in agony. And I always look at them and say, well, you know, there are worse things that could happen in life. And they would say to me, what, like what? And I would just laugh and not respond when I was in high school. You know, I thought, okay. So here you are, and Laura Sims, and you were telling me before that she went through an official adoption process, never quite got completed, but that it, that may happen. because It didn't get completed because of your age. You turned 18. I turned 18, yeah. But, but it looks like she, she and her husband... Uh, she's by herself. She's by herself. So, but it looks like she is uh, still planning to yeah, adopt. Yeah, because you. there's an adult, there's a kind of adult adoption that you could do so that somebody becomes legally in the legal sense. But what we thought was, 
she's my mother, whether it's legal or not, that's a secondary thing, and I'm her son. So we realize that that's the heart connection is there. The legal aspect is just something that would happen. And so, so this is fascinating. So here we have, an, an, and you're not an American citizen, you live in Mauritania now, and you're now... I am an American citizen. You are? Yes. Oh, how did that happen? <laughs> I, uh, when I came here, I lived, I started living here, I came on a prospective student visa. Uh, when I was in school, I was on a student visa, and then I lived there for a while. So eventually, I applied for a permanent residency. So you are you are one granted. of so you are one of the new African Americans. Yes. Do you consider yourself African American? No, I consider myself African. African, right? <laughs> I always say that I'm a, I am a Sierra Leonean with some American tendencies that <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've developed over the years. <laughs> and so your mother, and if it becomes official. This Jewish woman, you know, under Jewish law, I'm Jewish, uh, under, under Jewish religious law, you become Jewish automatically because your mother's Jewish. Yep. This is fascinating. I'm looking at a man who is potentially Muslim, Jewish, American. And Buddhist, because my mom also was practicing Buddhism, even though she's Jewish. <laughs> uh, so, so what do we, uh, you know, we were joking before because we had lunch together. Is there a bar mitzvah in the future? Well, I've been trying to ask my mom to have one for many years. Would you do it? <laughs> well, why not? I mean, I was joking with my mom when I was in high school, particularly. I, I, I had some Jewish friends because, you know, I grew up in a Jewish family, so I was always going to meet other Jewish families. And they told me, yeah, you know, I got this money during my bar mitzvah. And I said to my mom, I want to do this bar mitzvah stuff. <laughs> and there's some money in it, you know. So what do you know about it? Have you you've been to the high holidays? I've been to all the holidays. I like the tradition because it's very, there's a knowledge aspect of it. There are some things that are very similar about Judaism that reminded me a lot about my grandfather. The idea of listening, knowledge being transmitted, the idea of patience, acquiring knowledge. So I really love that about it, you know? Like I've seen some friends of mine who they studied for their Bar came and they studied and did these things. And I really, that aspect of it really uh, intrigues me. And also I read a lot of uh, Israeli writers, some of them are my favorite, like David Grossman, and, uh, and uh, I know... And David, do you mentioned David Grossman, I happen to know the name and his story and the tragic yeah, exactly. story where his son was killed, was it one of the final days in, yeah. in, in one of the recent wars in Lebanon, yeah. was it, or was it Lebanon, or no, it was in the Palestinian it's, I think territories? It's the Palestinian, yeah, territories and, yeah. and he gave one of the most moving anti-war speeches after his son was killed. Yeah. Yeah, an amazing man. He's a remarkable fellow and a, and a fantastic writer. But also, you know, I, I, when I read Jewish uh, writers of Jewish and the way they write, it's very similar to how Africans write as well. Is that there's right? a command for, for language and there's a, there's a tradition of telling stories that's very part of the Jewish culture. Have you ever read uh, Shalom Aleichem? No. So now I'm going to send you home with a book of Shalom Aleichem stories. He was, he was one of the great Jewish writers who wrote in Yiddish, but it was translated into English. Uh, the, the Fiddler on the Roof stories were based on mm. his works with great humor. Through all mm. the suffering and poverty, great humor. In fact, I remember the story he talks about the, you know, the, main, the main town where they all grew. It's called a shtetl, mm -hmm. very poor. And uh, it was called Kazrilovka. And I remember a story, I can't remember the, all the details, but it was somebody's a Jew from Kozrilovka was visiting Paris. Somehow he got to Paris and, and said, well, I'm Jewish, I might as well visit one of the Rothschilds, the richest family. <laughs> and he goes and visits the Rothschild to try to convince him to move to Kozrilovka. And the Rothschild finally comes to the door and says, 
why would I want to move to Kazrilovka? He says, because a rich man has never died in Kazrilovka. I, I should have set it up better. He said, in other words, it will guarantee you everlasting life. That was the joke. This, if you move to Kazrilovka, it will guarantee you everlasting life. Why? Because a rich man has never died in Kazrilovka. So anyway, I think you would love his stories. Yeah. But I guess let's finish this by saying, you know, I think there is a show here to be made, a TV show, you know, because really the, the mix of influences is incredible. And... I don't know, have you ever considered yourself potentially a, a, a bridge between, I mean, right now your work is, you're trying to help the kids now who are in the same position you were. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's your main mission in life right now. So do you have to pay uh, to, to pay military people to release these kids? No, 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 because if you do that, it's not sustainable and also it creates all kinds of problems. What it is is that in any country, where the fighting groups at some point get exhausted with the fighting and they've expressed interest to sign peace deals and end the war. To end the war requires that some of these soldiers will be put in the regular army, retrained, and some people will be given package like severance money to go and start another life so that they don't fight anymore. And so, so there's an adult uh, program for that, that the United Nations and other people support. But in order for you to begin that, you have to show that you're actually interested in respecting human rights. And one of those things is to release the children in your ranks. So it comes with, that's the, that's the caveat. You're serious about this, you want to end this, you want your soldiers to have another line of work and you want them to have economic opportunities. The only way you're gonna, sh we're gonna believe that you're interested is that you're gonna give us all the kids, you're gonna release all the women, you're gonna do this and X, Y, Z. And if you don't meet that criteria, then you can get you understand? So that's the, that's how the, the, you begin to gain access. And so what countries are you, Ishmael Bey, are now working in? I've been to many countries. I've been to Colombia, Sri Lanka. I was, uh, but of recent, I was in Central African Republic. That is still a mess. And uh, I I've actually have a plan with UNICEF of going to Sudan, to South Sudan, uh, where I've been, but I, I will go because it's getting out of hand there as well. And, and you're, there's a love story in here. A love story. You you met Priscilla. Yes, my wife. My wife, Priscilla. And and, you, um, and how did you two meet? And I, I can only imagine what that first conversation <laughs> was like. We met. We met at the UN. We met at the UN, and um, and we became friends for many many years. And then I fell in love with her, and and um, she fell in love with me. And uh, what was the what was the tipping point? <laughs> You say you were friends for many years, and then you fell in love with her. No, I, I, yeah, I was, we were friends for many years, and... Um, and she is, by the way, I should say, a human rights lawyer. She's a human rights lawyer. And, and a fascinating background herself. Well, she's from... She's Congolese-Iranian. Congolese-Iranian. Yes. The her only mother, one? Her mother is from... No, there are others. But there are, her mother is from Iran, and her father is from Congo. And she lived in Iran and everything. But, you know, I think I, I found, uh, to make a long story short, I, I found my soulmate. I found somebody who... I felt I've been looking for all my life, you know. So when I met her, even when we were friends, I had that feeling that when I was with her, I felt that I'd completed uh, some sort of journey, you know. So it, it really, you know, that's, 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 that was the striking thing. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't live without this person, so, you know. And now you're a father of a, of a young girl. And I have two more questions for you. So, uh, you know, 
your grandmother survived the war. And I want everybody to look at your Twitter page, at Ishmael Bea, because it's a beautiful, beautiful illustration of people gathered around a fireplace, clearly telling stories. Mm. And I didn't realize until you told me that, that it was an artist's rendition, but mm -hmm. based on the photograph mm -hmm. of your surviving grandmother. Yes. But you tell me what an influence your grandfather had on you. So when you decided that this was the woman for you, can you imagine what you would have said going to your grandfather? Would it have just been a, what, what did you call, what, how do you say grandfather in your, in your, your native language is what? Uh, Mendy. Mendy. Yeah. How do you say grandpa, how do you say grandfather in Mendy? Oh, well, there are many ways to say it, but you would just say, Nyakekewa. Uh, Nyakekewa. Now say it in Mendy what you would have said to him to, t to give him the news. Say it in Mendy. <laughs> I would have said, I. Uh, First say it in Mendy, then, then translate for okay. me. Okay, I would say, Nyake kewa nginyaya longa, nyongo vyangiwa, kenyalita nyanya nawa, na lupwejiva, nyongo vingungumbu. So what pretty much I'm saying is that, I will say, grandfather, I have met a woman who, who has taken my heart, you know, and uh, uh, there is nothing more I can do but to want this woman to be in my heart forever. That's, that's the expression in Mendy, you know. Um, and, what do you, and what do you think his response would have been in Mendy and then translated? <laughs> uh, he probably, well, I just say it, he probably would have said, well, knowing you, if you come to me and, say, and tell me this, it means that you have thought about it a lot. So let's go meet this young woman. That's what he would have said. Because my grandfather was always somebody who, when I came to talk to him, he would say to me, he taught, he taught me this, he says, never say anything to me that you haven't thought about. So whenever I would say anything to him, he knew that I thought about it. You know, I learned a lot. My, even my grandmother too, I learned a lot from both of them. I miss those days, I think, but those days are the ones that actually, I, I, I think about it now, they're the ones that have grounded me all my life. Something tells me you're going to be that kind of father? I want to be the best father that I can, you know. I'm, I'm doing the best that I can, yeah. I, I definitely want my daughter to have that tradition, you know, growing up to have that curiosity, to have that intelligence, to know how to listen deeply. Uh, because when you listen deeply, again, quoting my grandfather and what I learned from him is that when you listen, he always said to me, when people are talking to you, the most important thing is what is not said, the unheard. But that requires you listen deeply. They will say something, but if you listen deeply, you can hear beyond what is not said. And that's usually where the magic is. So as a writer, this is like, I was like, okay, this guy could have been teaching like <laughs> creative writing at Stanford or something, you know? <laughs> or, or, or conflict resolution? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. And, I've been listening carefully to you, and I want you to give us an answer because you told us that beautiful oral tradition, in that beautiful oral tradition of storytelling, you told us the story of the hunter and mm. the monkey. Yeah. And if he shoots the monkey, who dies? Your mother dies. And if he doesn't shoot it? Your father dies. And you didn't want to answer that? No, I always escaped somehow. But you have an answer now. Yes. I understood what it meant. You know, first of all, I think there are so many answers. There's not one answer. You know, 
at some point when I was when I came out of the war, when I was in the war, I realized that you know my answer was that I would shoot the monkey, so that the monkey would never have the opportunity to put anybody else in that same predicament. So your answer. That took, was my answer. Yeah. Your answer ultimately took into consideration the good of the community. Yes. But actually, that's not the right answer. I mean, if there is a right answer. The idea of the story is not about the right answer, which I only learned about this after the war. And my grandmother and my grandfather always said to me, at some point in your life, you will know the answer to this question. And after the war, I understood what all the story had always been about. The question of this story is really the idea of once you engage in violence, there's a consequence. Once you lift that weapon, once you lift that blow, once you say that nasty thing to somebody, there's a consequence. That was the, I learned that after the war. I wish I knew it beforehand, but, but they will never give you that answer growing up. You have to find it for yourself. Ishmael Bea, you, you've taught, taught us, me, a lot. Um, a long way gone, memoirs of a boy soldier, and uh, you've come a long way from there to teach us a lot in uh, the radiance of tomorrow. Thank you so much for thank joining you. me here at the Nantucket Book Festival on, for a Wavemaker conversation. Thank you, it's been a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening.